Well, Jenny Jones is an author, and she writes this very, very encapturing story about 16-year-old Katie Parker. Now, Katie Parker is a ward of the state of Texas, and she ends up in this tiny, tiny town in, in, in Texas, and she gets these new foster parents. And Katie has been in the system long enough to know that she's not going to be here long. She's had her mom in and out of prison, and her mom has been away from her even more than she's been with her, even when she's home, and mom is just, she's out. She's pretty much out of the picture. And so she meets James and Millie Scott on Labor Day weekend. Now, over breakfast the first day after she's driven to their home from uh, Iola Smartly, she's the director of Safe Haven Girls Home, that she is driving all the way across Texas from. She says, now, Katie, don't screw this up. And the story begins and interacts with this story between these two parents, uh, foster parents, who are trying their best to really care for this girl. Mom takes her on a shopping spree that lasts all day Saturday. In fact, she comes home with, like, the Macy's department store in the car. She can't even get out of the car to go have lunch. There's so many things in the way. But she realizes that, you know, she'll pick out a couple things she likes. She won't even take the tags off the rest because the chances that she's going to be there in six months are slim to none. But, of course, then she gets to dinner time and she spits milk across the table when she hears that her foster dad is a pastor, not only a pastor, but the pastor of the one and only church in town. And so you start to see this dialogue between a mom who tries really hard and a dad who is sort of uh, interested reading the paper, but, but puts it down to, to interact with her. And then the idea of her, him being the pastor of the church, her not really being interested in God, and then attending the first day of school in a new place, in a new town. And this brought back all kinds of memories for me. I'm not sure about you, but do you remember the last time you walked into a cafeteria where there is all kinds of groups of people and you have nowhere to sit because you don't know anyone? And she looks over at the poetry club, literally called the, um, the Singing Chihuahuas, because uh, that's their mascot. It's... Then she looks over at the skater group. She's not sure about them. She looks over at the band group. She looks over at the prep group, the sports, the jocks. The and then she sees this band of misfits. And, and the, the leader of the table as she walks over is a girl named Angel who has this spiked purple mohawk. And she's like, I think I found my people. You know, this girl sounds misunderstood. As she goes through the week and as she interacts with, with Angel and her group and then comes home and tells her foster parents about her day, you know, the, the parents start to get kind of concerned about her spending this much time with Angel. And as they do, she gets defensive. She finds herself getting very defensive over this person. And, and this girl's just misunderstood. Why can't you give her a chance? You know, she invited me to a sleepover. Can I go? And the parents end up saying, you know, well, we're going to need some details, but, but the conversation's not over. And so Katie, Katie gets those details and says, you know, we're, we're going to stay at her house or her mom's home. 
Uh, she said movies, popcorn, and, you know, gossip and pizza. And, and then she said, you know, I didn't, really s- I didn't really see Angel as this person who would do fingernails, gossip, popcorn, pizza. And sure enough, at 3.30 in the morning, after her parents say, yes, she can go, but here's a cell phone. We've known you less than a week, Katie, but we're going to trust you. She goes over to this house. At 3.30 in the morning, she hears a, psst, wake up, let's go. My boyfriend Vince is in the car. What on earth, where are we going? We're, we're going downtown. Why? Well, there's, there's a ghost in the old theater. And you need to see it. This is what everybody does in town. Now, there's a few bells going off in Katie's head. She's been around the block before, but she decides that she's going to go with. They call her a chicken, and so she decides to go. And sure enough, they end up in the most awkward five minutes of driving around. They end up in front of this theater that says Valent Theater. And it looks like in its heyday, it probably would have, you know, mirrored the Ordway downtown. And she sees the possibilities of what used to be, and she sees the possibilities of what could be if anyone ever tried to restore this building. And then her friends yell to her to come around the corner, and they motion with her to, to put her hand down and to get hoisted up. And she said, wait, 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 I thought you said we weren't breaking in. I thought you said we weren't going to do anything illegal. And they said, we're just going to go find the ghost. So Katie lets herself be pulled, literally, into this window, and she sees seven other flashlights, and then she sees movements around, and she's like, okay, where's the ghost? And then Vince says, the boyfriend of the ringleader, uh, ghost? You told her about a ghost? And you can see Angel kind of awkwardly talk about, uh, try and cover her tracks of, oh, yeah, 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 you know, everybody comes over here and looks for the ghost. Oh, oh, yeah, right. Katie, why don't you go down here? And she walks in and she sees the velvet that hangs from floor to ceiling. And she sees some of the brass that's still a bit shiny off the reflection of her flashlight. And she walks down to the orchestra pit and she's kind of looking in. And one of the girls says, you should go down there and check that out. I think the ghost is down there. Are you going to come? Well, well, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going to come. But, but you should go. I've seen it already. And you can imagine what's coming, and it actually does. She walks down the stairs, goes around the corner, and she remembers in her pocket she's got this cell phone just in case, and she hears this bang, bang, hammer and nails over the little opening where Katie was. And all of a sudden she hears glass breaking. She hears kids laughing, and she starts to really, really, really freak out. And then she remembers the cell phone, and she's like, this is going to be the most awkward phone call that I've ever imagined, but I'm going to make the call. I'm going to call my foster parents, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to tell them where I'm at and what happened, and maybe they can find me. And she starts to pick up the phone, flip it open, and all of a sudden she hears the, she hears the boards break off, and she starts yelling, and she runs out, and there are 16 flashlights at her with armed guns, pointed right at her, and it is the small-town police department. She's handcuffed, she's put in the car, and she's driven down to the station, and here they interrogate her. And, of course, she is the only one that's still left on the scene. All of the, the friends have ditched her, and now she's down getting interrogated. And he says, you know, who are you, and, and who's your parents, and do you know we have to call your parents? And, and she says, well, my parents are, are James and Millie Scott. And he's, whoa, what? Like, pastor? James? Yeah, yeah. 
that's my pastor. And you can see this look on his face, and he goes, now, at what point did you realize you were doing something wrong? And, and she starts trying to say, well, I thought we were going to go for look for a ghost, and I didn't do anything, and, um, you know, it sounded like things were broken. I didn't do that. And he says, you realize we're, we're going to have to call the owners of the theater. We're going to have to call your parents, and we're going to need some statements from you. And you can, just, you can just hear the fear and the regret in her voice. You can hear her start to go backwards in time and go, you know, maybe this, you know, the, they're just going to tell me that this is what's expected of me. This is what I always do. There's no way that anyone is ever going to forgive me. I'm just going to call the, the woman director of my teen home, and they'll just send me back. I, can't, I don't even want to face these people. I know I'm going to be sent back. And, and here's the police officer still barking stuff at her, and, he, and then all of a sudden he gets interrupted. And the, the d- deputy says, uh, Miss, Miss Porter, um, the owners of the theater are here to see you now. And she's got a tear, and she's trying to compose herself, and she turns around and she looks at her foster parents. And she sees this look of just pain and hollow stare and these two sets of eyes. And in their anger, these foster parents say to Katie, we said we'd give you a chance. We can't believe you've done this. We've been restoring this theater for nine months. We had six months to go and we were going to get to open and it's all been ruined. And they talk to the authorities. They send her to juvenile detention and she gets released to work on this project every day until it's fixed. Or when she turns and she looks at her foster parents and she sees the pain and the hollow stare these parents, in their mercy, they let Katie come back home with them. And they say, we're not giving up on you. And if you've given up on yourself, we are committed to you. And we will work with you as you spend every day after school doing work release, doing community service, restoring our theater. We will work side by side with you until it's all better. Now, which story do you think would sell more copies? Which movie would you watch? See, we love to hear a story about this mercy coming through and overcoming judgment, and we love to watch a movie or a play about mercy winning out when it comes to our other people's lives, but when it comes to our own life, and we're asked to show mercy, why is it that all of us step back? Today, Jesus tells a story that's way more shocking than the one I would tell. And Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 7. He's been going through these qualities of his kingdom, if you've been with us. If you haven't, we've been going through these statements of these qualities or these values of Jesus' kingdom. It's known in Matthew 5 as the Beatitudes. But Jesus is setting up, this is what it will be like if you follow me. I'm setting up a program, a kingdom, 
where these are the values, these are the things that we're going to lift up, and there will be some rewards for those of you who follow them. And they are in stark contrast to the ways of this world, the values of this world. And in this statement, Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Very quickly, he follows this statement up with a statement just a few a few minutes later, if he was giving this as a speech, he says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your heavenly father will refuse to give your sins. These are challenging, challenging statements. And as we go through them, I want you to think about this girl, this imaginary girl, foster girl, Katie Parker, Katie Porter, and and her foster parents and the response that they had, which is number two, in case you didn't know. But in order for us to really see this for ourselves, I believe that we've got to look at the challenge that mercy presents, the challenge of mercy, the necessity of mercy, and the opportunity of mercy. I mean, just think about the last time that you used the word mercy. I had to go way back in my archives. Way back. Way back to when I was a strapping four foot, five inches tall, about 68 pounds, and we would do this with our hands. And the guy that I would usually go against, because it was really embarrassing when it was a girl, but that's another story for another day. So when the guy stood there, and he interlocked his fingers, and we stood like this, ready, go, and... I had one moment where I thought my fingers went this way and my wrists went this way, but then it quickly went like this, and then I quickly went like this, and then my elbows broke, and all of a sudden I was back under here with this huge pain going down my wrist, and I would have to yell out with tears in my eyes, Mercy! And that's what some of us think of when we think of mercy. We think of weakness. We think of helplessness. And we think of pain. And Jesus tells a story when one of his students asks a question about mercy and forgiveness. We find it in Matthew 18. If you want a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's, It's almost like magic. It's very cool. So Jesus is walking around in his ministry with a group of people. Now, 12 of them are his students that are sticking around day in and day out. There's another group of women that kind of don't get mentioned, mostly because of the genre of the time, not so much because they may or may not have been there every day. And then there's other people that sort of follow when they can. And one of these people that's been day in and day out, who's hearing Jesus interpret the the law, the, the rules of the kingdom of the group of people that they're a part of, you know, he says, you know, I've, I've heard the rabbis talk about forgiving people three times. You know, well, should I get, forgive people seven times? That, that's way more, than, way more than any of the rabbis I know say. Seven's God's perfect number. This has got to be the good answer. Can I get a high five for this Jesus? And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. You're, you're just missing it. If you're counting, then you're missing the point. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. 
He's brought in his servants, began the settlement, brought out the ledger, this way and this way, here's what I think you owe, here's what I need back. And he comes to one of his servants who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, and he was brought to him, and since he was not able to pay, the master said and ordered that he, his wife, his children, and everything he possessed be paid, be sold, and the money come back to repaying that debt. And at this, the servant stopped, fell on his knees right before the king and begged him, be patient with me. I'll pay back everything. It says that the master's servant took pity on him. Maybe your translation says, had compassion on him. And he canceled the debt. And he let him go. Let him go free. See, the challenge of mercy is that this goes against everything we think is normal, everything that we think is just, and everything that we think is right. We've been looking at these values, and the kingdom of the world says that we should go after happiness, we should go after power, comfort, popularity, and recognition. And the kingdom of Jesus is not using any of those terms. It's talking about poverty. It's talking about patience. It's talking about mercy. And we go, oh, that doesn't make sense. And I would say one of the challenges that adds to this is we really don't understand mercy. We think it's like that game where we give up, where we're helpless. Or we think that if we use mercy, if we're full of mercy, we're going to get walked on. We're going to get taken advantage of. And we don't want to do that. And we, first of all, finally, we don't even like to receive help from other people. We'd really like mercy to mean, you know, well, I believed in God, I'm, I'm even trying to follow him, I'm even trying to make sacrifices for him, and I'm trying to take care of myself. I should get points for that. I should get a well done for that. And, and that is completely, completely different because someone walks up and asks for mercy, and we're like, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and now you want me to give up more? See, the real challenge of mercy is that we feel like we've already lost something when someone asks us to be merciful. And we have to give up something again. Think about when you use the word mercy. Even in this motion, I had to cry out because I was in need. There was no way I was getting free. You look all through the scriptures when humans are using the word mercy, when people need to call out for mercy, need to use mercy, it's because they are in utter need, just like this guy. Be patient with me. I'm begging you. See, mercy is challenging because we like to count what we have and we like to keep an account of what we give out. We're all little math accountants. I mean, I think it's always been this way. I'm not trying to criticize us. Back, 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 way back, Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy is this, this story in this book where 
God's people have come out of being slaves in Egypt. They've come across this wilderness. They've wandered around in the desert and in the wilderness for quite some time because they've got a few things wrong. And now they're about to enter the promised land. And their leader, who's talked to God quite a bit, who's a very humble guy, he stops and says, before we go in, God wants to say a few more things to you just to make sure you get this. I know we've said some of these these things before, but we're going to say it again. And in Deuteronomy 15, he talks about this idea. If any of you is poor among your fellow people, your Israelites, any of the towns that that the God is going to give you, get this. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards these poor people. Aren't those great, great words? I mean, I don't really like to be use those words. I wouldn't want those words to be said about me, but they're such a picture of what this leader is trying to say through what God is trying to say to these people. Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards the poor people. Rather, be open-handed and lend freely whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor bitterness or harbor a wicked thought, because in the seventh year, the year is of canceling debts. And when you think that way, you might show ill will towards the needy person and not give them anything. And he's saying, I don't want you to do that. So what happens is you got a poor person among you, and and we're supposed to, as fellow Israelites, we're supposed to give to that person. And so after five years of accruing some debt, you're kind of like, hey, I'd like you to pay some of that back. And so you're trying to ask this person for the payment plan. And they're like, oh, be patient with me. I'll pay it back. And you know you haven't seen a dime. It's not coming back in. And your six comes, and they're like, could I please have some more? And what's going on in every person that's around that time, every, every Israelite's mind is, in year seven, I've got to cancel that debt. I'm not giving out more to cancel the debt. I've already lost stuff. I don't want to lose more. That's the same idea when we think of mercy and the challenge of mercy. Is, I've already lost something, and now I have to lose more. For some of us, it has nothing to do with money. Some of us, somebody stole our dignity. Somebody took something of our popularity or our recognition. They took that raise. They took that title. They took that, that friend. And we think, I've already lost the friend. Why would I have to lose more? By just letting it go? By forgiving it? That challenges us. It challenges us because this is what mercy does. It cuts right to the heart, to the depth of our soul when we're in those situations. See, we don't really understand bags of gold, but I just did a little math. See, the bags of gold are called a talent. A talent is about 20 years worth of a full-time salary for a day laborer. So let's just use simple math so we don't have to spend much time on this. $10 an hour times 40 hours a week times 50 weeks a year, that's about $20,000. And a talent is 20 years worth of that, which means now it's $400,000, and it's 10,000 bags of gold. That's $4 billion. Billion! That's a lot of money. It's going to take him over 150,000 years to pay back. The average life expectancy, you know, around 40, 50, 60 years old. He's not getting the money. See, it cuts to the depth of our soul. 
And sometimes we hold on to it because we think we're about to lose more. And yet, if it's going to be this hard, my question is, why is it so necessary? Because I know everybody's thinking it. If this is the challenge of mercy, then why do we have to do it? Well, the story continues. The king cancels the debt and lets this servant go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. The text really says he happened to be going around and he came upon one of the servants. He accidentally bumped into someone and he recognized him as someone who owed him a debt. And when he saw that he owed him a debt, he grabbed him by the throat and began to choke him. And he said, pay back what you owe me. And the narrator gives us, that Jesus, the one telling the story, gives us that it was about 100 silver coins. It was about three months' salary. For a day laborer, it was about $1,000. Not a small amount of money, but not $4 billion. And he grabs him by the neck, and he starts to choke him, and he says, pay back whatever you owe me. He's maybe not even sure what the exact amount is. And the servant fell to his knees, and begged this fellow servant, be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay off the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged, and they went to their master and told him everything that had happened. And when the master, the king, heard about this, he called the servant in, and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And the hardest part for me, this is how our Heavenly Father will treat us unless we forgive our brother or sister in our heart. This necessity of mercy is not just the fact that maybe the king showed mercy because he wasn't going to get the $4 billion and he knew it. So he showed mercy because as a king, that could really, you know, up his approval ratings. But if we really look at the king, now, this is, it's called a parable. This is not a snapshot. It's not a perfect picture of what God's kingdom is like. It's more of a painting, more of a Rembrandt, maybe a Picasso at times. It's, it's just a slice of the kingdom. It doesn't give us every exact detail, but it gives us some ideas, and it gives it them with some, mm, some oomph. And if we look at the king, it's totally appropriate for the king to settle accounts. That's what kings do. That's what money lenders do. And it doesn't say that he had crazy interest rates on him. It doesn't say he was trying to extort people. There was no Ponzi scheme going on. And his decision to ask for the person to pay it back and even use them and their service and their, children and their family as possessions to pay it back is totally reasonable. It's just. We would say it's fair and appropriate. And yet, in this moment, when the servant begs, the king feels something. The word that's used there for this pity or compassion is this splunknesiume. 
Isn't that a great word? I just wanted to say that word. Splunknizome. You can say it if you'd like. Ready? One, two, three. Splunknizome. And it's this feeling that you should have some little tension right here if you work out like once a year or once a month or something. You know, right in here, it should give you a little bit of tense right here because it's deep within your soul, the heart of who you are. I mean, we know biologically our hearts are up here, but, but they don't have an idea. And so they just call this the heart and soul. And the splonknizome is this feeling of deep compassion that results in active care and grace to who least deserves it. This is the picture that Jesus is painting of the king, so he forgives the debt, and he lets the guy go free. See, what is the, what is the, the challenge of mercy is that it cuts deep to our soul. And what's the necessity of mercy? Because not only does it do that, it also lifts it up so we can see it, if we look. Sometimes we don't like what we see. So most of us put on masks. Halloween is just a day we get to make an excuse for it. But that's the necessity and challenge of mercy, is that it cuts to the depth of our soul, and then it lifts it out so that we can see it. And when this guy's actions and this guy's thoughts and this guy's sight are lifted out, what Jesus sees is, It's full of mercy. It's full of compassion. It's full of care. The king sees the servant, sees him begging, and responds. Mercy isn't just about forgiving the debt. It's about letting the grudge go. See, when we look at the next person, the one who's just released from servanthood, who's just been forgiven a $4 billion debt, when we look at the true condition of his soul, he's walking around, happens to bump into a guy that owes him $1,000, not a small amount of money, but still, once he sees him, he grabs him. I'm not sure what you owe me, but you need to pay me now. And what do we see in his eyes? What do we feel in his heart? We can't know, but Jesus is using these strong words to try and give a picture of what might be in his heart and soul. And he refuses to give mercy. There's no spanknizome in him. And so when he looks at the depths of his soul, it's no wonder he's called wicked. We see pride. I deserve this. We see retribution, I want it. I even had someone tell me a story about some conflict, even among Christians. And they said, I don't want reconciliation. I want retribution. We see entitlement, and we see judgment. This is what is necessary about mercy. Maybe you have a situation that you can remember, I do in my mind, a situation where someone wronged you, a situation where someone hurt you, a situation where you've been holding it and you are now thinking, do I have to let this go? I've already lost so much. I'm not going to tell you that you need to let it go. Jesus is going to tell you you need to let it go. 
But I am going to offer, when you look into your soul, to the deep, deep parts of your heart, and God, I'm going to say, graciously puts it out there, do you see what he wants you to see? If you refuse to forgive in your heart, this is how my Heavenly Father will respond. Now, we might be upset that this, this mercy is, is couched in this language of punishment and justice. And wait a second, how come he is so angry? Well, that's the opportunity of mercy. See, the challenge of mercy, the necessity of mercy, the opportunity of mercy is this thing that's pieced with judgment. Because we might say, that's evil, that's wrong. How come it's necessary for us to do this? Well, we have to remember that in every situation where there's this long, long list, it's easy for us to get frustrated. And the scriptures, the story of God, and in particular Psalms, over and over and over, talk about how God does not deal with us like we deserve. Because if we did, we'd all be in hell. It's the fun part about being a pastor's kid or the challenge of being in in my family is, you know, my kids will be like, that's not fair. And I'll be like, too bad, life's not fair. In fact, if it was fair, God would send us all to hell. I didn't say that when they were super young. And I try not to say it with, you know, the adult attitude I have at this moment. But there, there is a little bit of that that goes on in our house because it's true. If God treated us like we deserve, we'd all leave. We all do things that pull us away from him. And when he casts judgment here, this is not wickedness. When Moses, this guy that we just talked about, from, from getting to tell the people and bring them out of Egypt and tell them to go into the land, when he gets this super intimate moment with God at the very end of his life in Exodus 34, God comes in a cloud and he stands there with Moses and proclaims his name. Gosh, I wish we had an hour to just talk about that. To stand with the creator of the universe who comes in a cloud so that you're not disintegrated and proclaims his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate and merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains his love to thousands and thousands. And he forgives wickedness and forgives rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. No, he punishes the children and their children to the sins of the, for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generations. These are all together. We'd love to separate them, but we can't. We'd love to separate them because we see sin and we see rebellion and we see punishment from people's perspective who count punishment, who keep track. But God isn't a God who keeps track. But here's the deal. This servant acted evil, so therefore evil is present. If Jesus' kingdom comes, guess what? He's going to deal with evil. That's what just kings do. And judgment, if we look at the biblical definition, judgment is simply, or definition, is a decision against something that's just or unjust. That's what a judgment is. Think about a courtroom. Think about a judge. 
There's a point, I promise. We're getting there. For judgment to happen, there has to be a decision about what's right or, or unjust. And, and the, the evil, the wrong, it needs to be named and defeated if Jesus' kingdom is present. That's simply what Jesus is doing with this story about the wicked servant. The evil has to be named. The evil has to be defeated so that Jesus can be the just king, the just judge, the person who's righting all the wrongs, and we can trust him because he's good. Imagine if a church community was super loving but never confronted anything. Evil would still be present. Now imagine if a church, all they did was correct evil but never showed mercy and grace. Be a tough place to be. Maybe you grew up in a family that was like one of these extremes. But if these two things can really sit in harmony and in unity together, this is what Jesus brings. This is what the world wants to see. If a church could practice, and if our family could practice, and if our leaders could practice all the things that go on in this story in Matthew 18, or if you want, you can read the whole chapter, you will see these leaders come humbly looking and acknowledging their own humanness, their own wrong. First, then they have this eye to search for those that are lost, to, to those that have that wandered away, or that, like Katie Parker, that think there's no way they're going to keep me, everyone else has thrown me out, and they come after that person, like it says there in Matthew, and, and, and they go after these people in a, in a positive way. What if there were church leaders that would speak truth, but as discreetly as possible, without ignoring sin, but really wanting to see people come back into the fold, while they were also not limiting the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness? Because they modeled it like Jesus. Would that not be the church that you'd say, I want to go there. I want to tell everybody about that place. This is what Jesus is calling us to and calling us towards the only way, friends, the only way we can do this is if we look at Jesus as this amazing, gracious king who is filled with unconditional love, who has mercy, not just as one of his chief attributes, but like relishes the opportunity to give mercy whenever he or she can. This is who God is. Longing to give mercy. Never wanting to limit forgiveness. But also because so good, never wanting to let evil just continue to go through. That's big. That's corporate. But what about you? As the band comes up, as you remember the story of Katie, who have these two parents who say, we're taking you back in. We'll work alongside you. We hear the restoration, the turn and face one another idea. The idea that says, whether it's to correct or whether it's to offer mercy, I'm walking towards you. I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. That's why God has this attribute of mercy. That's why he calls us to this attribute of mercy. 
That's why we need to live this. Because we do things that help us to run or make us run to go hide or to go be by ourselves. We're all little foster kids. Just knowing that someone is going to send us back to that place where we're going to have to sleep with one eye open because the girl in the next bed or the boy in the next bed has a knife under their King James Bible and they're going to come and take something from us. And so we hide and we hold our stuff and we count our stuff, but we long to know that there's a God who takes everyone in. I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you. And never, it was like, oh, I'm not going to choose you. No, if you want to be my child, I want to be your father. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word again. I thank you for your spirit who's here and for these, these friends, these people that I might know or might not know, but God, you know and you love. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show us your amazing, unconditional love and that, God, you would fill us with your mercy. God, that you would fill us with your mercy that doesn't just lead to a, oh, thanks, but leads to this and fills us to this place where we forgive wrongs, where we don't hold grudges. God, where we're we're not putting ourselves in a position to be trampled on or taken advantage of, but God, we're in a position to continually reflect who you are and whose we are. Speak to us, God, about what we need to forgive. Speak to us about what we need to let go of so that we can live free, so that we can live filled with hope and joy and peace.